This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. With the biggest weekend in all of geek culture, just a couple of weeks away, we are here for episode 221 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. That's right, San Diego Comic Con. 2018 is just two weeks away. As a matter of fact, once again, I will be at San Diego Comic-Con giving you all of the great coverage, the panels, the press rooms, a whole bunch of great stuff, some great interviews that will be coming from San Diego Comic-Con and pictures as well. So make sure you're watching our social media pages for that. But first, you know, this week we've got Cullen Bunn back on the show. He's been writing some great stuff. We'll catch up with him on everything that's been going on and the Metro Kickstarter for the Metro graphic novel that he has going on with Brian Quinn and Walt Flanagan. We'll talk to him about that. And also, you know what's up next, right? It's what we're reading. Going to be talking about Batman number 50. No spoilers here, I promise. It's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is the writer Mark Russell, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Doesn't matter if you're on your tablet or your laptop or if you're pulling out that long box. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading and the wedding of the year. Sorry to the Royal Wedding fans. That's right. The Batman Catwoman Wedding and Batman number 50 from DC Comics. Of course, written by the great Tom King, Mikkel Giannan on the art, June Chung on the colors, and Clayton Cowles on the letters. I love the fact that the guy named Cowles is actually doing the letters for Batman, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Now, before I even get started on the book itself, no spoilers here. That's how we do our comic reviews. I mean, occasionally we have to spoil some things. Not going to talk about any spoilers here out of respect to Tom and everyone that's worked on this book. And there were a ton of other artists on this book as they were going through certain, and I'll get to that in a second as to why, but so many great artists lent their work to this book that I don't want to spoil 
any of this book. I know that it's been spoiled already a few places. If you've seen the spoilers, bravo for you. I'm not here to give you that. Out of respect to Tom especially, I'm going to make sure I do this review spoiler-free just in case you haven't read it yet, even though you might have. not going to talk about any spoilers here. So, that being said, this book, of course, is about getting ready for the big wedding and all of the preparations. We get to see Catwoman's side and Selena's side, of course, and we get to see Bruce and Batman's side. And it's very much a tale of two sides. And what we find out is, and maybe this is a tiny spoiler, very, very tiny, but again, in order to talk about this, even spoiler-free, I need to be able to say this much. And that is, they both, Bruce and Selena both wrote each other a letter. And that letter gets played out as the book goes on. We get to see the letter piece by piece, and that's where the art pieces come in. We have different artists come in, and they drew they draw a different Batman and Catwoman piece, and then we get to see the letter kind of read out for us. And let me tell you, first of all, Tom King, I mean, I know I've said this a thousand times, but Tom King has such a way with words, first of all. Second of all, just the way he plays out relationships in his comics. And you could tell this is a dude that loves his wife so much. And I know how he feels. I love my wife beyond possible words. But the way that Tom King plays this out, it's like he's writing love letters and it's so amazing the way he just throws his heart and soul into these characters. He does the same thing for Mr. Miracle, and he brings that love from Mr. Miracle into this Batman issue in this latest arc, as a matter of fact, as well. He's bringing that love into the Batman books, and it's something very different for Batman, you know, because it's not it's something that you see from Bruce Wayne and Batman very often. So that sort of plays itself out throughout this book as well. So we see the preparations and we get to see who the witnesses are. We get to see who the the judge is going to be that's going to preside. We're going to we find out where the ceremony is going to be. And again, I'm not going to spoil this, but I and I'm going to be vague and I'm sorry about that, but this is just the way that I'm going to do things. There is a moment where Bruce is talking to someone who's going to be involved in the wedding. That's all I'm going to say. And Tom, if you're listening, man, the the tears I mean, literally, I'm welling up with tears at that specific moment. If you've read the book and you don't know what I'm talking about, then you need to read it again because there is one specific moment with Bruce and someone that's going to be in the wedding that is, is, it's just, it floored me. It was so emotional. It was so great. And without words, too. That was that was the other thing. There, there was a moment there. There were no words in the panel. And it just, it's, but it said it all. At the same time, and it was such an amazing moment. So, congratulations to Tom and Mikhail for that, and even June Chung bringing the colors in this. Well, gotta gotta put her in there. Just an amazing job throughout. Now, I'm not gonna tell you what happens in the wedding, circumstances, anything like that, whether it happened or didn't happen. Not for me to say. What I will say is this much: when I saw the end, it was something that immediately made me say. I can't wait to see if this plays out in the next issue or where this is going to go or what the motive was for this. That was the thing that that got me thinking at the end of this book. And it certainly does make itself a landmark issue. There is absolutely 100% no doubt about that. And I'm not going to be talking about Catwoman number one either because, you know, there might be some spoilers there as well. And Joelle Jones, fantastic job as always, first of all, I love her art. Second of all, 
just the way that she, she her writing is also spectacular. So the way it complements Tom's book, I think was really, really great. So if I'm, if I'm throwing out there just a quick praise for Catwoman number one, which is also out now. It's that it's also amazing and a great start for that character in that book. So I will say, keep reading Batman if you're not already. You absolutely should be. This is not if you're a trade waiter. Don't wait for the trade. Get the back issues now. You're gonna want these back issues. It's that good and has been that good since Tom took over for 50 issues now. And I know as somebody who's spent some time with Tom and been around him and gotten to talk to him several times, pours his heart and soul into every issue that he writes, especially with Batman. And I thank him for that and just continuing to do such a great job with it. Going to switch gears now and talk about actually another really good book that's going to be coming out from Dark Horse Comics and the Burger Books imprint, and that is She Could Fly Number 1, which is written by Christopher Cantwell, who of course is the co-creator and showrunner for Halt and Catch Fire and AMC, if that name sounds familiar. Martin Morazzo does the art. Miroslav Merva on the colors. Now, this book actually focuses on a girl named Luna. She's 15, and she's taken a great interest in a woman that's been able to, she's been flying over Chicago at, you know, blazing speeds, and she's just up there in the air, and there's viral videos of her and things like that. Now, before I even get into more about this issue, what surprised me about this is that you see in the description that she's a troubled girl. You see that in the description at darkhorse.com. This book does an amazing job at looking at just the terrifying aspects of anxiety, depression, other mental illnesses in general. If you've ever suffered from either anxiety or depression, this book will definitely speak to you. And you maybe you will see and the fact that you see that, you know, if you're if it's someone that if you're someone that doesn't and you read this book and you're thinking, is this really what people go through? That's the one thing that you ask yourself is that if you haven't, if this is not something you've ever gone through in your life and you see this and like, wow, is that really what it's like? And for some people that, yeah, that is what it's like and it's terrifying. And we get to see Luna's inner demons kind of play out in the issue and it's horrifying. And, and you just, you just feel for this girl and wonder why she is in the place that she is in her life. And, you know, she's getting help, but there's... And, but, you know, there's only so much help that she's that she's going to be able to get in, in the place that she is. And you just see where she's at now to top it all off. And this is in the description, by the way, darkhorse.com. So this is absolutely not a spoiler. Just in case you haven't read it, though, the, the description, I mean, then, yeah, you might want to skip ahead about 15, 20 seconds. Now, the flying woman that we see over Chicago just explodes in midair one day. There's no explanation for it. And Luna sees it, and that's when Luna's story takes a very interesting turn for two very specific reasons that I will not spoil for you here. What's also going on here is we also see a behind-the-scenes story of, you know, who may be responsible for what's been going on, whether it be with the woman or, or something else that's going on, and, and how they're going to be dealing with that. I'm sure that we'll find out more about that. As the, as the issues start to come out, it's very vague in this first issue, but in a very, very good way. It's one of those teases that makes you wonder, okay, is this connected to what just happened? And is, who is, who's the one that's really responsible for this? Because it's not very clear 
as to who's pulling the strings is the best way that I could put it without spoiling it. So that's one thing I really, really love about that particular part of the story. Now, in a book where emotion seems to be everything, the art does not disappoint for one second. If the art wasn't as good as it was, the story would fall flat big time. Even though Cantwell's writing is so, so good from this issue, without Martine Morazzo, this book would have fallen flat because the art is absolutely spectacular. Every facial expression, every emotion is captured so deeply that it just draws you right into this story. And one of the reasons that I just could not stop reading this book, it's, it was a very, very quick read for me. And when I say that, that means that I was very invested and just sped right through it to the point where sometimes when, I read, when I'm reading comics, I'll check to see how much I have left, especially if I'm reading them digitally. I'll see how many pages I have left. And, I'll, and that's where I know my interest is gauged. Didn't do that for a second with She Could Fly number one. As a matter of fact, I flew through it. Yeah, that's a pun. You know me. I'm not sorry for it. It was a great book. It's a poll for me. Hopefully it's in your poll box now. Go to your local comic shop and tell them you want She Could Fly number one and Batman number 50 and Catwoman number one while you're at it. Yeah, spend some money on comics this week. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next this week in Geek Tame. And I'm going to be talking about the latest sci-fi thriller from Netflix, Tau. My spoiler-filled review is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jason Lyles from Rampage the Movie, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, kids, it's time for another lesson in the dangers of artificial intelligence, because this week I'm going to review Tau, which is a movie on Netflix, going to be spoiler-filled from here on out if you haven't watched Tau yet. It centers around a woman named Julia. Now, we're made to believe, at least at the beginning of the movie anyway, that Julia is not the greatest person in the world. She steals stuff and sells it for money. She's clearly down on her luck sort of thing. She's on her own, hiding her identity, all of these different things, until she's kidnapped. Now, we come to find out that she's kidnapped by a, I guess you could call him designer, named Alex. Now, Alex is designing an artificial intelligence program. And the current artificial intelligence program that he's running in his own smart home that he kidnapped her and took her to is named Tao. Now, when she's first kidnapped, she's kind of kept in this basement. You could tell she's having experiments done on her. It's very, very creepy. She's seeing all these past moments of her life kind of flashing before her eyes sort of thing. She's got this this chip inserted in the back of her head like Suicide Squad style. And she's with two other people. Now, before I get deep into the plot here, because I don't really want to word for word tell you about this movie. I know You know I don't normally do that. But here's the deal, and at least in the beginning of the movie anyway, and this is kind of where it it went off the rails for me. So they're captured. She sees that there's two other people with her, and it's the whole feeling out process of, okay, how do we get out of here? Now, let me preface this by saying, again, a lot of spoilers here, so don't be surprised. They do find a way to get out, and it's pretty clever. I will give her that much. I'll give Julia that much. So it's pretty clever how they get out. What I don't understand is, is, is how... Okay, so they get out. The other two end up getting killed by, by I guess, by Tao and the, and the program and the robot that's run to sort of track everybody down or kind of be the house's security system sort of thing. Now, 
once Julia kind of survives this and Alex comes home and she gets subdued and all of these other things, what what I didn't understand was is that and this and this Alex guy is clearly a psychopath, right? I mean, he has moments it seems like of clarity, but clearly a psychopath and clearly just under the pressure of being able to get this artificial intelligence program done for his company so he can make all this money. Anyway, my problem was is that he kind of just decides to let Julia stay in the house and just roam around free. It's almost like he was like, ah, she's probably just going to break out again and blow up another part of my house. So I should, I guess I should just leave her to run around and let Tao take care of her. It's like, really, dude, really? You're a nut job. And you've decided that you're just going to give in that easily and not throw her back in her cage. How many times do we see this in movies where your, your main character escapes or at least a group of characters escape they get caught, they get thrown back into something else, right? Maybe not the exact same thing, but you get tied up again at some point or put in some sort of cage, and that happens a couple of times. But again, invariably, Julia, either by escaping or just by sheer stupidity on Alex's part, just keeps letting her out. Now, the, the thing that I do like about this movie, though, is that the relationship between Julia, who decides she's going to befriend Tao, and that's how she's going to try to get out. So when Tao tries to fig- tries to find out more about Julia, and she tries to really bond with Tao, and that's where it starts to get interesting, because we find out that Tao knows nothing about the outside world. So Julia's like, okay, well, I'll teach him about stuff in the outside world, and clearly pique his curiosity. Now I know what you're saying, This is a machine. Again, we're talking about artificial intelligence here. And Alex even said something along the lines of, I'm developing a program that would be sentient but obedient. And that, to me, is the crux of this entire movie and the the conversation that can come up from this, is that can you have sentient beings that are obedient? Now, he's using fear and pain as obedience. And that, I'll get to that in just a second. So that that's how he thinks he's going to be able to keep an artificial imp- intelligence program like Tau in line. And he's having Julia do all of these of these puzzles that get recorded into this thing that's in the back of her head, which is kind of, it's, it's almost like it's mapping her brain and her responses. And then he's going to remove it, use that to try and make an artificial intelligence, again, like a real person, sentient and obedient are the only two kind of caveats that he wants to go to, uh, together. He wants an AI that's like a real person, but that is going to be obedient to their master no matter what kind of thing. So that's the whole point of this whole exercise. So while Julie's doing this and she's befriending Tao, and that's really where the movie kind of, you know, it hits the kind of beats you kind of expect it to, where you see Tao start to become more of a quote-unquote person, and not just a machine, and yes, they are bonding. And there's a few more escape attempts by Julia. A couple of them kind of involved Alex being there, and a couple of them didn't, where she was kind of grabbed and tracked back down. And ultimately, Tao decides that he wants to side with Julia. And there's a little bit of a battle going on between Alex and Julia. They they get into it a couple of times. But again, she ends up finding a way to roam free several times. Even when she tries to cut the guy with a knife, she still ends up finding a way to walk around free. And I know he's going to finish his project and all this other stuff. I understand that. 
I totally get that he has to finish the project. I understand, okay? But still, he even says to her at some point, what's to keep me from strapping you to a chair and just throwing a tablet in front of your face? And you'll just do this out of boredom. Now, I know he's running out of time at that point. But at the same time, you feel like if he really wanted her to do this and complete these tasks, especially being a legit psychopath, that he would find a way to do that. So it's just weird to me how he's supposed to be this smart dude and this crazy lunatic guy, but at the same time, he can't figure out a way to keep her in line. And it's sort of implied that she's intelligent as well, at least crafty and has great survival skills, right? There's a lot of good qualities about Julia, but you know we don't know why she was chosen. We don't know a whole lot about Julia anyway. We don't get to find out a whole lot about her past. It's, I mean... It's implied that she had a rough childhood, but we don't really know that other than a couple of flashes that we got when she first first gets kidnapped. And we don't really know anything about her. So you're banking on me just, you know, being humane, first of all, saying, you know, she shouldn't have been kidnapped and she certainly shouldn't be held against her will and made to do all these things and possibly die at the end of it. I get that. So as a human being and the fact that she has a soft spot for Tao and the Tao is also being mistreated, I understand that. Trust me, I really do. But at the same time, you're not giving me a huge reason to kind of, I don't want to say root for her. You're not giving me a huge reason to get that invested in what happens to her. And and I don't really feel like she's not going to make it out. Again, that's it's just not something that, that I felt throughout this entire movie. Now, I will say this. One thing that this movie did succeed in doing is continually freak me the hell out when it comes to artificial intelligence. Because let me tell you, there was one point in this movie where Tao goes batshit crazy, saying that, you know, I'm a human, I'm a person, because once Julia kind of gets mad because Tao won't let her out of the house sort of thing, right? So she he goes nuts, and it looks like the exorcist in there. I mean, there's lights flashing, things are going crazy, and she eventually calms him down. But at the same time, this does not make me want to see advances necessarily in artificial intelligence. I know it's just a movie, but think about it. Every time we see something like this, that envelope gets pushed of, okay, how sentient do you want an AI to be? You want them to be helpful, but with any kind of sentience can come thought, uh, in, you know, you know, thought outside of what the obedient commands should be. And, uh, you know, free thought, I guess, is the way that I can really put it best. And all of the things that come with that, where at one point, like Tao, where she says, where Tao says, stop, where Alex says, stop Julian, Tao says, no, no, not going to do it. So then, of course, he takes out his little memory wiper, you know, car alarm thing and starts hitting it and, and starts hurting Tao and erasing his memory sort of thing. So, I mean, if, if this movie succeeds in one thing, it certainly succeeds in that. But, it, I mean, again, it was just a little all over the place and we don't get a whole lot about julia there's only just basically the three characters the entire movie tau alex and julia this entire time you expect somebody else to come in at some point i mean you get get alex talking to his his fellow colleagues about the project and all of these things but really beyond that there's not much else and i'm not sure how much else you really needed but at the same time you keep waiting for the other shoe to drop and it really doesn't. It's just basically her trying to escape and her trying to befriend Tao the entire movie. I'm not sure the connection 
was quite there. And it seemed like every time something was revealed about this movie, it made it more and more predictable. So given that, I'm going to go ahead and give this five and a half drone prepared meals out of 10. So there were some good things about it, but just not good enough for me. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tamin and my spoiler-filled review of Tau on Netflix. Up next, yep, another heaping helping of nerd news and even some pre-San Diego Comic-Con announcements. Next, on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Robin Lord Taylor from Gotham, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. What happens when a movie universe suddenly decides it doesn't want to be one anymore? We're about to find out because it's time for nerd news. Normally, I don't address rumors on the show, but this one was too good to pass up because there is a rumor that DC Entertainment and Warner Brothers Pictures are going to kind of can the whole connected universe thing, stop connecting their movies, and focus on solo movies, and then maybe at some point, Cross them over down the road. Now, this information actually comes from a Twitter user who is at Daniel RPK. Now, I know you're thinking, really? That's your source? Really? If you go back, though, on this Twitter user's account, this person has had a handy knack for dropping some pretty good DC news in the past that has panned out. So let's just run with this like it's true for just a second. I'm fairly certain at some point, in a past episode of this show, that I said this, that this is exactly what they should do. You're not going to beat Marvel by being Marvel. And you're certainly not going to do it by rushing into it, which is exactly what they did with almost all of these movies, right? Certainly with Justice League. Now, I didn't hate Justice League. I actually kind of liked Justice League. So, I don't think that... I mean, you certainly seem to rush... Batman versus Superman. The only movie that didn't really feel rushed to me was Wonder Woman. I just feel like Suicide Squad can't even be in this conversation because it was such its own thing and I loved it for that. I know, I loved Suicide Squad. You know, judge me for that if you like. But I, I really liked Suicide Squad. And maybe one of the reasons I liked it so much was because other than having Ben Affleck's Batman in it, wasn't really connected to anything. And again, Wonder Woman kind of connected but not really connected sort of thing. So at one point when you're DC, do you have your two really kind of most successful movies, right? I know Batman versus Superman made a heap of money. But still, at what point when you're DC do you go, "Huh. Look at what we did when it wasn't really connected and then look what happened when it was connected." Sometimes having things be connected 
are just way too complicated. So here's what you do if you're DC. And I think this is a good idea, whether it's true or not. Here's what I would do. I would say, you know what? Let me look at, at least look at my core characters. Are they successful enough to succeed on their own? Say what you want about Aquaman. Certainly think Aquaman's successful enough to succeed on his own. We know Batman's successful enough to succeed on his own. We know Wonder Woman's successful enough to succeed on her own. We assume these things about Superman, Flash, Cyborg, any other movies they want to do. Joker, Birds of Prey, Batgirl. These are a lot. They, DC has a lot of characters that can stand on their own, as does Marvel. But Marvel had a legit plan going in. They were one of the first ones to do this and just happened to get it right. But that's their formula. Why follow their formula and try and do that when you're not them? Being a carbon copy of someone else is not usually a good thing, and it certainly hasn't been for DC in this case. So what you do is, it's better than starting from scratch because you don't really have to do anything, do you? You can just do these movies. I'm not saying pretend the Justice League never happened or Batman vs. Superman or any of these movies. You don't have to pretend they didn't happen. You don't even need to flashpoint the thing. You know what you just do at this point? You move on. You absolutely 100% move on. And I know you're thinking, well, you know, what about bringing Darkseid in and the whole tease from Justice League and where do you go with that? Maybe you just don't. Maybe you let that be Superman's world and let Superman handle it. Maybe you just let that be the Superman universe that you're going to use. Maybe you don't bring Darkseid in for a while. There's nothing saying just because you had Steppenwolf that you have to have Darkseid right this second. You can hold that character for as long as you need to. Maybe you do bring in Darkseid a little bit earlier. But I don't really think you have to do that. There's so many other characters you can get to. As a matter of fact, we've still got Lex Luthor to deal with. You could certainly make that a big part of what's what's going on with Superman going forward. You can do whatever you want with Deathstroke. You want to give him his own movie? Fine. You want to put him in the Batman movie with Matt Reeves? I'm fine with that too. Just because certain things have already happened doesn't preclude you from doing this. and Or even going backwards and telling stories from before that even happened. You want to do that? Fine. I think you could just move forward and not worry about what's happened at all because what's the worst that could happen? Honestly, so you connect it later on down the line and you can reference any of that stuff that you like from way back then. You can absolutely do that whenever you want. There's no rule saying you have to do that right this second. So if this is the plan, I think it's a darn good plan and I hope it's one that they decide to do. Maybe we'll find out more information at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Speaking of San Diego Comic-Con, every year Boom Studios does their Road to Comic-Con announcements. I wanted to quickly cover... What we know so far. Now, the big one came out was the first one. Was that Boom Studios is bringing Firefly to the comics. And we've got Greg Pak on to write. We've got Dan McDade, who's going to be doing the art. Yes, Joss Whedon will be consulting. So he's absolutely going to be a part of this. Now, this comes actually right from the press release. So I want to go ahead and take little bits of this. It says that it will take you back to the battleground where it all began and reveal a secret history that might end it all. Fans have demanded it for years, and now the definitive story of the Unification War, the intergalactic civil war that ended, that divided friend and family alike, is told at last. So this is what we're actually going to be getting. And actually, one of the quotes is, is that it's time we get the full story of Mal and Zoe's meeting and the mission in the War of Unification. So it looks like... 
And that's what Joss Whedon says. It looks like we are finally going to get the story that we never got as Firefly fans and that we should have gotten if not for Fox canceling the show. Or no, and you know, it was funny. If this would have happened now, somebody would have picked up Firefly by now, right? But at this point, it's too dangerous to reboot it. Yes, they did a movie. Think about that, Timeless fans, by the way. For Timeless fans still hanging out hope for a movie. Yeah, Firefly got their movie. They got Serenity. And that absolutely, positively wasn't good enough. And this is not me saying I don't want a Timeless movie. I would love a Timeless movie. And I would love to see it wrapped up. But don't think that that is the be-all, end-all. And maybe it's better than nothing. Read my article at downandnerdypodcast.com about Timeless coming to comics. Maybe that's a better idea. And look at what Firefly is doing here. It's coming to comics. So I think that that's the one thing that we're going to get. And again, endless possibilities for where you can go with this and endless amounts of stories that you can tell. I think this is going to be a huge deal for Boom Studios. How about a little something new from their second announcement? And it is Sparrowhawk number one which is going to be coming from Delilah S. Dawson, who did Lady Castle and Forces of Destiny for Star Wars. And we also have Matthias Basla, excuse me, who is a kind of a rising artist of the Claw and Fang. This book's going to be coming out in October. Now, here's the synopsis of that story. As the daughter of a naval captain born into a very different world, Artemisa, I'm sorry if I butchered that name, has never fit in with her father's family nor the high-class life to which they belong in the complicated time of London in 1851. When she's targeted by the fairy queen and put into another realm with a deadlier threat than she's ever experienced in the Victorian era, Art finds that she has no choice but to try and save the world that has always hated her. I think it's a really cool concept. I mean, you're going back to 1851 London. That never hurts at all. There's just something about that era that just makes for good storytelling. And then you bring in the the aspect of the Navy and the military to boot. I think that this is a winning idea. This is one that we're going to be seeing in October at some point. It looks like we're going to be seeing the Firefly stories somewhere in time, somewhere around October and November as well, by the way. I forgot to mention that. And the last announcement, I want to touch on this really quick. The Backstagers are going to be coming back for fans of that book from James Tin and the Fourth and Ryan Singh, along with a whole bunch of special guests like Sam Jones, who worked on the Backstagers Valentine's Intermission, Sean Murphy, and more. And this one's going to be Backstagers Halloween Intermission. So we're going to kind of go along with the theme. This time it's going to be a Halloween theme. I think that that's just going to be really fun. The Backstagers has been a fun book from the beginning. And look for more of those announcements from Boom Studios as we lead up to San Diego Comic-Con 2017. I want to touch on something kind of serious that came out this week, and I debated on whether or not to talk about this story, but I actually think it's kind of important. It actually came out about Jar Jar Binks actor Ahmed Best, who says he became suicidal after the fan and media backlash over the Jar Jar Binks character the Star Wars prequels. The Star Wars prequels, by the way, almost 20 years old. How crazy is that? So he had a very touching post and a very serious one on Twitter and also pointing out his his family now and his son and how he's kind of moved on with his life, even to the point where he actually said that he's proud of his work and has actually returned to the character a couple of times since then in, in animated series. Now, this is really a shocking reminder of how sharp criticism can affect people that are actually living this in their day-to-day lives. This is the man's livelihood. 
and it cost him certain jobs, which, I mean, I, I understand that from that certain standpoint. But, but at the same time, it's okay to not like a character. It's okay to criticize said character and in the, in the kind of workings of the movie itself. But it's when things get toxic and when things get pushed too far, like happened with Kelly Marie Tran recently from The Last Jedi backlash that forced her off Twitter. When it gets to the point of death threats and just downright nastiness in fandom, that is what drives me nuts. I mean, why so much hatred and toxicity in fandom? And this can especially be true for Star Wars. I know that's pl- there's plenty of that to go around in other fandoms. We've seen it even recently. For, for some reason, Star Wars, and even Star Trek at times too, seems to have this just, I don't know, level of hatred that is kind of shocking to me. And I don't understand why we have to take it that far. As a matter of fact, I'll go this far, okay? I've seen the prequel movies many, many times since that they've since they've been put out. You know how Star Wars is. They show the marathons on TV. You put the remote down and you just let it go. Now, were the prequel movies masterpieces? Absolutely not. Were there plenty of problems with them? Sure they were. But you know what? If we really, really want to be honest, and you can you can flame me on this all you want on Twitter. You want to come bash me, just go ahead, at me, come at me, whatever the kids are saying now. The prequels, Star Wars prequels, weren't that bad. They weren't that bad. They weren't great, but they weren't as bad as as a lot of fans really make to, seem to make them out to be. Nothing is ever going to touch the original Star Wars. Nothing's ever going to touch A New Hope. Or Empire Strikes Back. Those are almost two movies that were done so well. Nothing's ever going to measure up to that in Star Wars. And and how could it? That's what you loved. That's what made you love Star Wars in the first place. For a lot of fans, that was not only their indoctrination to Star Wars. That was their indoctrination to fandom in general. You hold that close to your chest. And close to your heart. And I understand that. And there is a passion that comes along with something like that. But when you use that in the wrong way to lash out at someone like Ahmed Best, who's just doing his job, and even if you didn't like his character, that's absolutely 100% fine. I don't mind you not liking Jar Jar Binks. I wasn't a huge fan of the Jar Jar Binks character, but I didn't let that drag me down into this pit of having to lash out at the dude that played the character, and for the most part, not even his fault. You want to go after somebody, talk to the writers, directors, producers. You want your vitriol to go somewhere. Maybe that's where it should go. This guy's just doing the job that he was told to do. He's executing lines to the best of his ability. Even George Lucas said he was supposed to be, Jar Jar Binks was supposed to be comic relief. And it suddenly kind of just sort of got out of hand sort of thing. So for Ahmed Best, I, I feel sorry that he even ever had to go through this. Hopefully... This is a lesson that can be learned here, and that is we need to stop doing this. And it's gotten really, really bad lately. We need to stop going after people. And I know that maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't do that. I'm not talking to you, and you know it. So don't get offended by me talking about this. You know who I'm talking about. If anyone that is that kind of fan is listening, you might not be listening for much longer after this, but it doesn't matter to me because 
This is not something we need to do as fans. This should be fandom should be a loving place where everybody's allowed to have their own own opinions and everybody's allowed to love what they love. If I met somebody tomorrow who said I love the prequels, doesn't don't care what anybody says, I'm not gonna laugh at them, not gonna judge them. I might ask them why and have them have me give them get their opinion on why they love the prequels so much because maybe I wouldn't understand it, but I would certainly be open minded. To their position, and if you can't find something to love about the prequels, there's got to be something in there, right, that you love from some of them. Then I don't know. I'm not going to tell you how to how to be a fan, but I mean, you just got to let go of the anger. I guess is the is the main point of what I'm trying to say here. So hopefully, this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Really quickly before we move on, we know that Skyward has been a great book so far. From Image Comics, from Joe Henderson and Lee Garbett. And it looks like, again, Image wasting no time getting movie adaptations because Variety reports that Sony is optioning Skyward for a movie. And it's going to be involving Rampage producer Brad Payton, who's also going to work with Joe Henderson, along with producer Jeff Fireson, who also worked on Rampage. It's actually interesting that the Rampage team is going to be a part of this. Now, in case you're not reading it, you really, really should be, though. Skyward's kind of set in a world where gravity is suddenly just kind of not there anymore. It's dropped to basically zero. And the, sh- the story follows Willa Fowler, who was born just after that happened on G-Day. And something very, very tragic happens in that first issue. Not going to spoil it if you haven't read it yet. Maybe you're waiting for the trade. I don't know why you're waiting for the trade, because it's awesome. But it kind of changes everything in her day-to-day life and who she is. And she, and it's, again, one of those things where she's, she's young and she wants something more. She's in her 20s. She's dealing with what her dad di- is doing currently. And I won't spoil that for you either. And just to follow up from that, this is a movie waiting to happen for sure. This definitely works better as a movie than it does as a TV series, even though you kind of probably get more storytelling. This works so well as a movie. And I know we're going to be getting more comics from this because it's such an amazing story that that Joe Henderson and Lee Garbett have put together that I know we're going to get more from this. So there's certainly possibilities for sequel movies. And you give me this story, maybe the first volume of this book in a couple of hours, and I'm going to be a happy man. And I know that volume two could be the sequel movie. It just seems like this is a character in Willa they could really, really take off. Yeah, I went there. Another pun. Mark it down. I went ahead and went there. This is a story that is going to be hugely successful if cast properly. And if you're given, just stay true to the source material. Don't try to deviate too far from it because it's already good at its face. You don't need to give me a shot for shot here. But what you do need to give me is something that feels like it's authentic and true to the story because Skyward is one of those it's one of those kind of sleeper hits as far as movies that are concerned they could really really go somewhere if given the right opportunity and done properly and I think the team that's involved might actually do a pretty good pretty good job with that it's going to do for nerd news up next let's check in with writer Colin Bunn and all of the things that he has going on we'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy podcast this is Artis Ficosio, artist of Revolutionaries, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Because we wouldn't want to break our streak of having Cullen Bunn on the Down and Nerdy podcast, we had to have him back on once again just before San Diego Comic-Con. Of course, it's writer Cullen Bunn. How's it going, man? 
It's going great. So, Colin, I'm pretty sure you're trying to break some sort of record with how many publishers you can work with at once. Now, given that, I'll ask you two things. First, how do you decide which stories will work best for certain publishers? And second, with for licensed properties, what's the most important factor in deciding which projects to take on? So, so to address the the first question, you know, it, it all depends on on looking at the catalog of the publisher and seeing the kind of books that they have published in the past, the kind of books that that they are currently public publishing, and, and just looking at uh, whether or not the book I might be pitching to them fits in in you know fits somewhere in that catalog, uh, you know, and there in, and there are all sorts of crazy things to consider like cross promotion capabilities, you know, if they publish a book. That is similar to, say, Bone Parish, which is coming out from Boom. Is there potential for readers of the, you know, of, of the first book to to jump over to Bone Parish? Things like that, you know, all play a role. And that doesn't even take into account, you know, the editors I've worked with, and do I think uh, the editor will work well with the book, and, and that I'll work well with the editor on the book, and things like that. With licensed properties, that's been uh, been a little bit of a learning curve, I th- I'd say with that for me. You know, in the past it was always uh you know, if it's something that I had some sort of nostalgia for, uh I would probably jump onto it immediately. Nowadays though, I think I'm more interested in if uh you know, if I'm offered a licensed property, does it fit with my personal brand as a writer? Mm-hmm. You know, it, and there are some 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 things that I probably really liked that don't fit with that brand and, right. and the, the, the things I want to, to portray as a writer. Uh, and, and I take that into account now more than, than anything. We're going to get into a bunch of that here in just a second, but I wanted to start by talking about Metro, of course, which we saw at San Diego Comic-Con last year, and you all just moved that book over to Kickstarter not too long ago. Now, what was the deciding factor in going that route for anybody that doesn't know? You know, we, there were a lot of things that played into it, and, you know, when we, when we first started putting... Metro together, uh, we did intend to go with a publisher with it, and and we intended to do it as a single issues, but uh, <laughs> we had a few publishers right away that I think the book scared off. It, it's uh, it, it was interesting because the first few pages of the book, which were the first things we sent to publishers, uh, have some pretty uh, some pretty rough stuff in it. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and I think that scared a few publishers off. Uh, and then we had a number of publishers who really wanted to do the book, but we we had to evaluate, you know, what that publisher could bring to the book, where we were willing to to maybe change creatively if the public, you know, if the editors and publishers wanted us to make some changes. And after a lot of discussion and soul searching, we just decided that you know maybe Metro is a book that is best served by going out and doing it ourselves, doing it our own way, and and controlling it pretty much in you know, in, in every fashion. I mean, the book is, the book's already done, or at least the first, you know, the first 122 pages of the right. book are done. And we don't have to wait to get on a publisher's publishing schedule. We don't have to, you know, sit around twiddling our thumbs any longer on it. We can just bring the book out the way we want to, and, and it'll be the book we want want it to be. And and that was the, you know, that was the deciding factor. You know, a big part of it for us was uh, distribution, and and getting the books to people who backed it, none of us, uh, Walt Flanagan, Brian Quinn, and I, none of us had, you know, really had the time uh, to to do that right. So we brought in people who have done it very successfully, successfully for very successful Kickstarters to handle that for us. 
Uh, and once we brought them in, we decided, yeah, we can, uh, you know, this is something we'd like to just try ourselves. I, I'm interested in Kickstarter on a, on a personal level for a number of things, because I think there are some books that just aren't right for any publisher that, right. that are just better served in, you know, in, in just bringing them out yourself. And uh, so I was interested anyway, but it just seemed like so. So Metro seemed like the right time to uh, to really jump in on that. For anybody that's hearing about Metro for the first time, how how do you think you'd best describe Hunter Murphy? Is it like John Constantine and Domino had a baby? What's going on there? <laughs> so so Hunter Murphy, the the lead in lead in in uh, in, in Metro, is a junkie, and he has died. So when we first uh, when we first meet Hunter Murphy in the opening pages of Metro, he is in the city morgue. And he's waking up, and he's suddenly resurrected from the dead. And he has no memory of who he is. Um, the only reason he even knows his name is because there's a toe tag uh, attached to him. And uh, he doesn't know how he got there. He doesn't know how he died. Um, but what he does seem to have is this strange connection to the city uh, around him. The city seems to uh, react to his to his whim, uh, either conscious or unconscious. And his story is really trying to figure out what that means. Why does he have these uh, these strange abilities? Uh, and it's it's complicated by a couple of things because it seems that Hunter Murphy, before he died, was involved in some capacity in this gris- in the grisly murder of a police detective's family. And it's further complicated because this group of murderous conspiracy theorists called the Wide-Eyed Three uh, have learned that he has uh, risen from the dead. And uh, they think he's the key to proving all of their wild conspiracies. And they'll pretty much stop at nothing to get their hands on it. Which is why you're going to want to get your hands on Metro, by the way. But we'll get back to that here in just a second. Now, I wanted to switch gears and talk about Harrow County, which has been so great. i got to tell you, I miss it already. Now, so let's jump right into it. I wanted to talk specifically about that last issue. Spoiler alerts for anybody that hasn't read it yet. That final battle between Emmy and Hester Beck. In my review that I had, I talked about how the fight was just as much mental as it was physical. So talk about what it was like to put that conclusion together. First of all, I, I miss it already, too. Uh, I, it's, it's very bittersweet to have wrapped up Harrow County. Uh, it's, uh, it's a book I'm very proud of, uh, and, and I'm not going to be modest about it. I think, it was, I think it's a great book. Uh, and if you haven't read it, you should go check it out. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, that final battle... I didn't want it to be a, a story of two witches throwing fireballs at each other like something out of a Dungeons and Dragons game. Mm. Uh, you know, I wanted it to be. Uh, it, it had to be the only the key to victory or to success for Emmy had to lie in her hands and not just be something where she could power her way through this uh, this opponent of hers. And and Emmy really had to make some some tough calls and tough decisions. Everything with with Hester Beck, the witch she was locked in battle with, it, it has been Emmy's decisions that brought you know that that brought her to this point. So it had to be Emmy that figured out a way to stop Hester, you know, and it, and it couldn't be a story where where she was just going to be more powerful than Hester. Uh, she wasn't, you know, she she was she was not going to be more powerful than Hester in a magical capacity, but she could be stronger than Hester in a, uh, a mental, co- mental capacity and in a willingness to, to make sacrifices, you know, that would lead to a better, you know, a better world or a better place. 
and that was you know the the whole story the the entire series of Harrow County has been so much about Emmy's coming of age and Emmy's uh, dealing with the fact that she may be this uh, the 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 reincarnation of this witch and, and figuring out how to be her own person and struggling with the idea of fate versus free will and and the the end game for her had to be about free will and accepting that and what that mean what that means. And that's uh, that's really how that uh, that all ended up playing out the way it did. Now, hopefully, we won't have to miss Harrow County for too long because we heard way back in 2015 that it would be developed into a TV series, but we haven't really gotten a whole lot of updates <laughs> since then. So, are there any updates that you can give us on that? Because we're looking forward to it. So, I can't give you many updates. Uh, I'm not allowed to give you many updates. Of course, of but course. but I but I can tell you this. It is very – there's a lot of activity around the Harrow County TV show right now, and there's some exciting things going on, and I'm really hoping – I keep thinking that we're very close to an announcement on, on, on some stuff with Harrow County, so uh, I'll just have to keep my fingers crossed and hope we get that announcement soon. But yet there's a lot of activity. I mean daily there's a lot of stuff going on with the TV show right now. I just wanted to make sure that no news was good news on that front. Yes, it is. A, this is definitely a no news is good news scenario. Okay, because it was uh, scaring me a little bit there for a second. Well, you know, it's it's funny for me because you know I've I've been down this road with with television and and film adaptations many times. It it moves so much. Uh, it moves at such a different pace than than the world of comic books. <laughs> oh, yeah, and uh, and and that takes that's taken a lot of getting used to for me. I don't know that I'll ever be used to that. So, uh, so, but, but I've learned that yes, when you aren't hearing things, typically that's good news until suddenly there's bad news or something. Well, yeah, and, and then there's the, <laughs> the, the bad news does seem to come very quickly. If there is any bad news, it's not a, a you know, it's like pulling off a band aid. They just, you know, here it is, boom. <laughs> that, that's that's definitely a good point. Talking to writer Colin Bunn, of course, of pretty much everything you've ever loved in your entire life, which we're going to be talking about in more detail now because you speak of Boom and even though Harrow County is over really looking forward to your project with Boom called Bone Parish we talked to you mentioned it a couple minutes ago so the idea of a drug made from the ashes of the dead might be one of the creepiest things I've ever heard in my entire life so how intense are things going to get now that you have that full 12 issue series order you know it's a, it's a very intense comic and it's a it's a book that you know, I'm methodical in how I'm approaching the horror elements of the book. Um, I mean, it's as much a story, a family crime story, as it is a horror book. But it is a book that escalates with every issue. And I was planning on these big escalations when I knew I only had five issues. Um, now I know that we've got at least 12 issues. Uh, I'm just able to escalate it, you know, all the more. <laughs> so I'm not slowing down the pace of, of the way the story's, you know, taking place, uh, I may be actually increasing the pace a little bit, and definitely uh, the drama and the tension is elevating uh, with every with every issue. So it's just going to be even more, uh, you know, just ratcheting it up, you know, all the more. And you saying that, because I know slowing down the pace isn't exactly your style, so I think I, now I'm even more excited for it. Well, that's funny. You know, it's weird because uh, it, I get a lot of people say, you know, one of the things that I've I've been told many times, especially with my creator-owned stuff, is that uh, that I may be too deliberate and I take too much time. And because uh, a lot of times with horror books, I feel it's more important to take a slower pace uh, with with darker stories. 
but yeah, then I have a few people who say, man, you sure do like to, <laughs> to rocket through this story. <laughs> so I, 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 I don't know if I take it that me. far, though. I need someone to tell me. Which way am I going? Am I too slow, too fast? Come on, people. I mean, I, I think that it depends on the book, though, doesn't it, a little bit? It does. It, it, it always depends on, on the book and the story. You know, I think, uh, I think Bone Parish is really going to take some people by surprise. I think it's one of the best first issues I've ever written. Wow. And I just, just this past week, I told my, uh, my editor on the book, I told him that uh, it's stress, it's stressing me out because the first issue I thought was so, you know, I was so happy with the first issue, and so happy with the second issue, and and now I feel like I've I've set a bar for myself mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, it's going to be tough for me to maintain. Uh, so that's kind of a, that's kind of stressed me out a little bit with with the series, but uh, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think people are really going to like. I said I think people will be surprised by it, and I think they're they're really going to like it. Speaking of fun, another book that you have coming soon is something that I think will really help bring something new to Marvel, and that's As Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, I think you mentioned somewhere that you first pitched this idea in, what, 2015? So why do you think now was the right time, and what was the idea behind who was chosen for the team? Well, yeah, I uh, I sent this uh, just, like I said, in 2015, I sent this email to uh, the editor of the the Thor comics, uh, who I had... his name is Will Moss, and I'd worked with him only once before, and that had been when he was at uh, DC. He he was one of the the editors that brought me on to my first DC project years and years and years ago. But I just had this idea that uh, that the title, and, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mince words. It started as a pun, you know. I like the title nice. as Guardians, you know. I like the title as Guardians of the Galaxy, and uh, I thought it could be a fun book. So I I sent him an email with the I said, hey, here's an idea for you. What about a book called As Guardians of the Galaxy? And and here's the team. And you know, and I, I pitched like a, a initial arc and a team that would be in the book and things like that, very briefly. Uh, and at the time, you know, I, Will was interested. He liked the idea, but you have to figure out when you're going to get on the publishing schedule and how it fits in with you know every other you know every other book and things like that. So it just kind of went on the back burner. I had heard from other creators that had been in the Marvel offices and things like that that. As Guardians of the Galaxy is still written on a whiteboard, you know, like a year later, someone said, hey, there's a book on the whiteboard in so-and-so's office wow. called As Guardians of the wow. Galaxy. What's that all about? So it was just sort of sitting there in, in a limbo for a while. And then uh, I think the, the thing that really kickstarted it into, you know, into existence is uh, Infinity Wars. They, they saw an, an, an opportunity for the book to kind of be birthed out of that. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was kind of... I wanted to do the book, so I wasn't hesitant to do the book, but I didn't want it to be a book that you had to read uh, Infinity Wars to enjoy. Okay, good. I I wanted it to be a book that if someone just wanted to read a story about a bunch of Asgardians in space, they could get in there and they can enjoy it. And yes, there are some nods to Infinity Wars, but it's not a book – you know, so often the tie-ins are so connected to to the event, Mm -hmm. they're, they're almost like chapters that you have to read. And this was a. I wanted it to be a story that, uh, if you're reading Infinity Wars and you want to see this, you know, this part of the story, that's awesome. But if you, you know, if you're not reading Infinity Wars and you just want to read a fun Asgardian book, then this one's for you. And I'm sure Thor Ragnarok helped that out a little bit. Yeah, you know, I maybe think, a little you know, bit. The the cosmic stuff uh, in the movies probably helped the decision along to to go ahead and greenlight the book. And then you know, since so much time has passed and things have changed. 
quite a bit since I originally pitched the title. Uh, the team that I had pitched changed a little bit, and you know, certain characters that I wanted on the on the team originally were no longer uh, available. That there there things going on with those characters, so they couldn't be in the book. I definitely wanted the, the big big one for me. I wanted Valkyrie uh, to be in the book. She is, but I think she may be the only character from the original pitch that is still on the team wow. in this iteration. Uh, it, it changed. Uh, it changed a lot. And there were other characters like Angela. You know, suddenly is you know is a character who they want to put some some more spotlight on, and she's great. So Angela is now in the book. There's you know Beta Ray Bill, who was a character I wanted to put in as Guardians of the Galaxy, is no longer available because he's there's some other stuff going on. I think with him somewhere down the line. Uh, so you have to kind of navigate those waters a little bit. Now, Cullen, before I let you go, other than mixing surge and whiskey like a savage. Apparently, <laughs> you're becoming a pro gamer now. So, which one of the books that you've written that hasn't already been made into a game do you think would make a great game? Wow. Uh, well, that's a. I think they would all be. I, I think they would all be awesome games. I think. Uh, I think there's some potential with Harrow County to be a really cool uh, board game. I think there there could Ooh. be some really there could be a really cool board game created with Harrow County, and I think. Uh, you know, nowadays, uh, board games and, and role-playing games, the art is so important to to the presentation of these games. And I can just see, you know, a giant board game with all these beautiful cards full of Tyler Crook, uh, Tyler Crook art that uh, that would be just amazing. So I, I think Harold County is probably the, the one I would say, but, you know, heck, The Damned could be a great game. I have, uh, I did a book called Hellheim. Years ago, that was a, a, a sort of a, a Frankenstein Viking story mm-hmm. that I have in my mind. I know exactly how the game would play out, so I have that in mind. You know, there's just so many, uh, you know, so many of these books that uh, it's it, it's part of the the dangers of of creating comics and loving games is you want all of them to be uh, adapted into games. Definitely, yeah. Now, now you know, Cullen, speaking of Kickstarter, uh, board games, thats nothing's more successful on Kickstarter than board games right now, so, you know. Well, that's true, and, and I, have, uh, I have allied myself with some people who are very, very talented uh, game designers, and, and, you know, we talk about things like that, so, you know, you never know. Just going to keep pushing that idea until it actually happens, just to All let right. you know that in advance. Do it. <laughs> now we'd be here until new york comic-con if we listed everything that you had going coming out right now so the best thing that you can do follow him at cullen bun on twitter all the updates always go on there as a matter of fact as far as metro go- is concerned make sure you're following at metro underscore comic for all of the updates there and you still have a tiny bit of time ju- to jump in on that kickstarter if you haven't already it's writer cullen bun thank you so much for joining me again this week thank you so I feel like I could have just spent this whole show talking to Cullen Bunn alone about so many things that he has going on. I mean, you look up the publisher, and Cullen probably has one, if not a couple of books, with all of them. That's why you got to follow him at Cullen Bunn on Twitter, like I said before, because that's how you kind of learn about what Cullen has going on, unless you're just a diehard fan, you're already locked in, and you just go to your local shop and say, you know what, if there's a name on a Cullen Bunn book... I want it. Just throw it in my box. Of course, you're probably spending what, like, ten grand on comics per month. But at the same time, you know it's good stuff. You gotta love Cullen's work, and he's doing such a great job with so many things. Also, follow him at Metro underscore Comic 
for what's going on with the book that he has going on with Brian Quinn and Walt Flanagan. It's just, I've gotten a little sneak peek of it from last year's San Diego Comic-Con. It is intense, but it's going to be another winner from Cullen. I promise you on that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Cullen Bunn for stopping by this week. I can't wait to see who stops by and talks to us at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Of course, we're not too far away from that now. Got some great interviews lined up. The press rooms are going to be open. We'll be in there as well. Make sure you're following all of our coverage at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, at Down and Nerdy 757 on Instagram, Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy, and on our website, new and improved at Down and Nerdy Podcast. Remember, no matter what, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.